Welcome back to The Author Biz. I'm Stephen Campbell, and this is the show where we deliver the information you need to become the CEO of your author business. You know, sometimes the fates just work together perfectly. I had a show suggestion from listener Mendy Lowe, who asked for a show about authors making the most of their backlists. Then I saw that Chris Fox had a new book coming out today, in fact, titled Relaunch Your Novel, Breathe Life Into Your Backlist. Never one to look a gift horse in the mouth, I reached out to Chris, who is also a member of the AuthorBiz Facebook group, and we put together today's show, which deals with one of the biggest issues facing authors today. When, how, and why should an author take the steps to relaunch their backlist? Chris lists six different ways of relaunching in the book, and we'll talk about some of those as well as some nitty-gritty specifics of his own series relaunches. We also delve into the importance of author branding and even get into marketing audiobooks. This is an information-packed show that I think you're really going to enjoy. Chris is always a great guest, and it's it's always a, a treat for me to have him on the show. I am releasing this one on Friday, June 30th, because we're coming up on a holiday weekend, and so I wanted to avoid the Monday release. We'll be back to our regular Monday release schedule on July 10th. If you're in the U.S., I hope you have a fantastic 4th of July weekend. As always, we'll have show notes for this episode uh, with links to everything we mentioned, including an affiliate link where you can grab a copy of Chris's book at theauthorbiz.com. This show starts with me asking Chris for the primary reasons an author might want to consider relaunching their backlist. Yeah, the primary reason that an author should consider relaunching their backlist is the first time we do this, it's a new career for a lot of us. We've never published novels before. We don't really know what we're doing. And so we make our best attempt at putting a book out there, and we don't do it correctly. And we, we kind of make a lot of mistakes along the way. So when you go back with fresh eyes, you know, two or three or how many years it's been since you started this publishing business, you spot a lot of stuff automatically. And it's way easier for you to kind of relaunch something and get a better result than you did the first time around. And it, it's also the vehicle that you kind of are going to need for your long term career. I, I used to think that was new releases. And I, I guess mm-hmm. to a degree, it is. You make a lot of your money from new releases, um, and then, they, of course, they, they trickle down to uh, a long tail. But if you can get enough books in your backlist to perform decently over time, then you can make a living without putting out new books. And I think that's that's something, you know, sort of the holy grail for most authors. I don't, Mark Cooper made a comment, in, and you mentioned Mark in the book, and Mark is a listener to this show. So, hey, Mark, how are you? And uh, <laughs> Mark made a comment that he hadn't put a book out for a fairly long period of time, and he was still making his money. I'm not going to say how much, but he was still making a lot of money, and it was all through the management of his backlist. And there were a lot of people, including me that were absolutely stunned by what he'd written. Yeah, Mark is indirectly responsible for uh, Relaunch Your Novel being written because I, I saw what he was doing and I realized, hey, I'm putting out a book every two months and he's putting out a book every two years and we seem to be making similar money. <laughs> I mean, I made a little bit better than him, but, uh, you know, how is he doing it? You and might so be I, working I really a little harder, it. too. <laughs> <laughs> And something he said in one of his uh, posts on keyboards really caught my attention, which is um, there are millions of people that want to read your book, millions of them out there. And how many of those people have you discovered? If if you spend a little more time taking the books that you've already written and trying to find new or larger markets for them, you can make a lot more money than just sitting around writing new books. 
Yes, and one of the things that Mark really focuses on is, uh, you know, it's the things that you focus on in this book, and, and we'll get to some of those, but Mark's covers are all spectacular, but he changes them on a regular basis, and he changes his blurb on a regular basis, and he really tweaks his email list, and he really pays attention to all of the details that essentially that everyone does that's making a lot of money as an author. Yeah, I think that's very, very important. It, really critical to success. You've got to be dotting your I's and crossing your T's, and you can never rest on your laurels. Something you made two years ago, times may have changed. Maybe that cover is no longer appropriate, and so you should replace it with something a little bit more updated. How do you know when it's time to go through a process like this, Chris? Um, I, I think it depends on how many books that you have out. So the fewer books you have out, the more attention you can give each one. And that means that it's probably time to do it sooner. But if you have a deeper backlist, I try to go by priority. So which series do I think are going to sell the best? And then, you know, are, are they worth the amount of time necessary for me to go through a full relaunch? And if the answer to both questions is yes, then I'll go ahead and relaunch it. One of the things I loved about this particular book is the way you used yourself as an example. And, and what so many people do when they're writing books, um, nonfiction books, is they use their, themselves as the best possible example. And in your case, you're, you used yourself as an example of someone who did a lot of things wrong, and you used the relaunch as, as a way of correcting them. And some of your series, you recognize that there was a lot of opportunity there, and other series, you recognize that there, there was a limited opportunity there. Yeah, I think it's very difficult as an author, um, especially when you're first a new author, putting out a book, having people judge your work where you don't want to hear as a creative that the book that you put out there isn't amazing. But part of what is allowing me to make a career out of this is being able to assess my work and say, no, that really was a mistake. And I did screw up here. And getting to the point where I could admit that publicly and put this in a book and say, you know, here's my mistakes. Please learn from them. Don't make them. Um, it's gratifying. And because we see you everywhere online, people see you at conferences, they see you on YouTube, they, they see you on Facebook and in Kboards and in all kinds of different places, we all know that you've been writing for like 25 years. Long time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how long has it actually been? When, when did you – it wasn't – the first time we talked wasn't that long after you'd written your first book, I don't think. We spoke, I want to say, in like February or March of 2015. I only had one book out at that time. Um, and at that time, I thought I was writing fast. I was getting a book out every six months. <laughs> um, so I've probably only been doing this seriously, like really professionally putting out books for about two and a half years. Okay. And at what point – you were a software developer back then, and then there was a transition period. You're a full-time writer now. Uh, what was the time frame for that? It took me about a year to know that I could make enough money that I could do this full-time. Um, but I'm, I'm a very cautious person in that regard. So I took a look around. I made sure my, my debts were paid off and that I was starting to accumulate money in the bank. And I gave myself a, a rather aggressive figure of I want one year's salary in the bank, like a full year of worth of money I'd make a, as a software engineer. Mm -hmm. And then and only then can I can I go ahead and quit and do this full time. So I worked really hard, basically two full time jobs for about a year and then um, finally cut the cord and, and left the day job. And one of the things that I find fascinating about what you're doing is, it, as an example, you said it was taking you six months to write a book. So you realized you had to pick up the pace a little bit. You did. You developed some strategies for doing it. And then you wrote a book about how to do it, how to write 5,000 words an hour or whatever, whatever the title was. I don't, I don't remember the exact title. But you do it, and then you teach it. 
I, I think teaching is a great way to make sure that you know how to do something. So mm-hmm. that was part of the reason I did it initially. I wanted to put these books out there to kind of make sure I was mastering my own process. And, and interestingly, I learn as much publishing these books as I think the people who read them do, because many people reach out to me via email and say, hey, did you, did you consider this optimization? Have you thought about this? And so they'll give me tips on, on improving my own process, which is something I never stop doing. There, there has to be something about the process of putting your thoughts in order in a logical fashion that that just drives it deeper into your mind and clarifies your own thinking. So that's, it's, it's kind of a cool way to teach yourself. Yeah, I agree. All right. In your, what was the first series that you relaunched of yours? The first series of mine that I relaunched, um, I, I think the first experiment that I did was a box set for my deathless series. Okay. So I didn't really understand per se that I was relaunching it, but I'd put these books out. They were doing okay. I didn't quite have enough time for me to write the next book yet, and income was starting to fall. And so I wondered what would happen if I put these into a box set and put it out and it kind of relaunched it. You get yourself a new um, what's called ASIN number at Amazon, so mm-hmm. it's a new product which kind of starts their algorithms and puts you on the hot new releases list. And I put that box set out there, and I realized I could make money – republishing work I'd already put out there. So this was all books that I'd done before. It was just collecting them together in one box set. And, and it did enormously well. It's it's grossed um, almost five figures by itself since I put it out, um, which is not bad for a, a book that um, was comprised of stuff I'd already written and been paid for. Was this a, a three-book box set or six books? It was a three-books box set. So I had a, a short prequel novella, which is basically just a short story, mm-hmm. and then the first three books in the series, and I put all that out as a, a bundle. Okay, and how how long after the release of the third book in the series did you do the the bundle? And, and you talk about this in the book. You talk about timing and why you might want to wait a little while after that. But it was sort of one of those things where you do it and then you go, oh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done it that quickly. Yeah, it's a great example, I think, of, of taking action, even if it's the wrong action, because you'll you'll learn that it's the wrong action and then you'll mm-hmm. you'll course correct. Um, I put out the box set only, I want to say, two months after releasing book three in the series. And as you know, any sane person would have would have assumed, and I kind of didn't, uh, it cannibalized sales, cannibalized sales of the existing series. So book three barely sold at all because you could get it in this box set as, as a part of the box much cheaper than you could buying it individually. So I sort of shot myself in the foot with the launch of my third book by releasing it so soon. One of the things you outline in the book, in, in, the, in your new book, Relaunch Your Novel, is I, I think it's six different types of relaunches. You mentioned one of them is bundle. Others, I mean, they range from the relatively simple and don't take a lot of time to the might take a whole lot of time and might take a whole lot of money. Do you kind of want to walk through the, the different types of relaunches that you cover in the book? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a data guy. I love systems and numbers. And so what I did is I came up with a few different launch kind of frameworks that you could use. So it ranges from the very first one is um, the facelift, which is maybe you're redoing your blurb and you're fixing the formatting in your book um, and just cleaning things up a little bit, removing some typos. Uh, and then going ahead and putting it in a Kindle countdown deal. So you're doing a promotion. You're not putting a lot of work into it. You're not making a lot of changes. It's sort of the, the minimum viable relaunch that you can do. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the $6 million relaunch, uh, so mm-hmm. named because of the 70s show, the, the Bionic Man, which I absolutely loved as a kid. 
<laughs> I, you you did mention that it was the best show of all time, which which kind of cracked me up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose people would probably debate that, um, but yeah, I love that show. And, and the the concept of the show was they rebuilt this guy from the ground up, and that's mm. what you're doing with your book or your series. If you're doing the six million dollar, you're you're paying for new covers. You're probably paying for new editing. You may need to take several months to rewrite the series yourself. Um, so. I, I guess I, I wanted to put together multiple packages so somebody could look at them and say, OK, I've got time for this one or maybe this one makes sense and have a few different options rather than just give them the principles of a relaunch. So fully half the book is these um, different kind of packages you can apply to your, your book. And they all make logical sense. And, and you start the book with the idea of a self-assessment, essentially, looking at your work, looking at the books, looking at the level of success you've had with those books, where you're at with your cover, um, branding. Uh, and branding's a big thing. I really want to get into branding in a bit. But how hard is it? I mean, you've, you've been through this for a while. How hard is it for a beginning author to look at their books and, and, and really look at them with a critical eye? You know, it's brutal for two reasons. First, you're not necessarily sure what's wrong. Why did it fail? Mm-hmm. You know, what are the problems with this book or series? And so you may not be able to identify them. And second, I mean, this is something you worked probably for years to publish, your first book especially. Um, and you've done all this work to get it out there. So taking a cold, hard look at all the mistakes you made, and in my case, there were a lot of them, <laughs> it, it can be demoralizing. It's tough. Um, and it gets tougher if you approach a mentor, like let's say a, a, an author in your genre who's doing really well, and you ask them to take a look and tell you what's wrong with it. And, and most of them are happy to do so, but you'll get a laundry list of, oh my God, there's all these things I did wrong and these problems that I created. And it can be tough to, to stay upbeat and then you know be realistic about what it's going to take to fix your book. How did you do that? Um... I kind of recoiled for the first day when I looked at it and I realized what a mistake I had made with um, Heroborn was the series that, that bombed the worst for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I sort of had to take a couple days off writing and not think about it and, and focus on other things because it really hurt realizing that I had been so off base and so wrong um, about how I thought this book was was going to do and what I put together. Um, now that I've done it more times, though, it's much easier. And I think that's the key. Um, force yourself to get through it the first couple of times and be really brutally honest about what you did right and what you did wrong. And then it'll get easier as you release more books. You'll have a larger backlist. Um, each individual book will be less important to you. And you'll sort of get better at accepting self-criticism, um, not in a damaging way, but in a way that'll help you grow as a writer. Let's talk about the different reasons for for perhaps doing a relaunch. I mean, one obviously is sales aren't what you think they should be. Are there others? Um, keeping your, your audience growing, I think, is very, very important. Um, I didn't really understand this rule at first. I, I thought it was all about the number of copies that you sell. But really, it's about how large is your fan following and is it always growing? Because as long as that fan following is growing, these people are happy to buy the new books that you release. And they're also going to go through your back catalog. And every time you relaunch a book or a series in your back catalog, you're going to attract kind of a handful to a lot, depending on how well it does of new readers into your funnel, people that are, are going to be subscribed to sort of your author brand and looking for stuff you put out. Branding is something that you spend, I don't know if you spend a lot of time on it or I was really focused on it because I, I found that to be so interesting. But how is branding alone reason enough to go through a relaunch? I think so, yes. If you conceive of a new author brand where you realize, you know, I've written four books in this genre and six books in that genre and two books in this third genre, 
and, and you realize that it's kind of a mess and it's difficult for people to find you, um, you may want to solidify your author brand and say, you know what, I'm Chris Fox, the science fiction author, and I'm going to be all about being a science fiction author, and I'm going to make it easy for people to identify that I'm an SF author and to find my various books. And then the relaunches that I do will feed into that. And maybe some other relaunches that I could have done, I'll choose not to do because they don't fit that author brand. One of the things that I found a little bit interesting in in preparing for this, I read the book over the last couple of days, and I wanted to go into Amazon and look at some of the rebranding examples that you gave. And the the examples of your books for authors, it's a great example the way those are branded. Anyone who's out there listening who has seen one of your books would recognize any of the others uh, of the books, the the nonfiction books written for authors. Um, But some of the other examples that you gave, and I might I, I know I can't pronounce his name, and I might get the titles wrong, but is it, it Bill the Vampire? Bill the Vampire, that's Bill correct. The, I mean, that series, the way that was rebranded was brilliant. Yeah, I was so impressed when Rick did this. I, I will never forget it. Rick was one of those giants that was on K-boards when I was just getting started, um, and he would share openly everything he was doing. So he had wonderful covers. I love them, um, and so did everybody else. And he had made six figures with the series before he decided to make the change. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people told him he was crazy. But yeah, when he sat down and he rebranded those six books, it catapulted sales into the stratosphere. His readers love them, and it's unmistakable now. I mean, you see the branding, and that for me was kind of a light bulb moment where I realized, oh my God, it's really important. And I, I, as a general rule, I don't read vampire books and and that kind of of fiction. But when I was looking through the rebranded versions of his books, the covers were so captivated that I was drawn into the description and I read the description and downloaded the first book because I just had to read it. It was so well done. Yeah, the blurb that he puts together is great. If you read the first few chapters of the book, it's funny. It's really funny. Um, And you can see why it's as successful as it is. And all of that leads up to the brand. If the books weren't branded correctly, if they didn't have the right titles and the right blurbs, then the, the right audience wouldn't be led to investigate the series. And it's interesting when you t- when you walk us through the assessment process, there are all these different things. And, and in my own mind, I'm going, oh, yeah, that's the most important. And then I think the next one, oh, th- no, that's the most important. <laughs> and, you know, you get to the covers and titles and fonts and all of these things and, and the way they all come together to create a cohesive brand. How long did it take you let's, – let's just talk about the, the books that you write for writers. How long did it take you to get it right, or did you get it I, right with the first one? I got it right with the first one, but that was accidental. I, I didn't really understand what I was doing, and I got really lucky. The cover designer that I hired put together um, – it's called 5,000 Words Per Hour, and mm-hmm. he said, hey, why don't we try a traffic sign? You know, make it look like it's a sign, so it's a, a speed sign that you'd see on the freeway. I, I thought, hey, that's a great idea. He did it. It came out wonderfully. And when we released the next book in the series, even though it didn't make sense to have it be on a street sign, we just kept doing it. And I, I think the key there is that they're so visible. They've got those bright colors on the backgrounds so that you can read on a thumbnail exactly what that title is. Um, and, and we just kept going with that brand. One of the things when you get into the more expensive versions of of the relaunch that that involve new covers, new covers can be super expensive. And it's a a big decision for someone to make, especially if you might have four, five, six books in a series. And you talk through – you give examples of of – maybe they weren't real examples, but you shared stories of of people who – 
redid the covers and then didn't like them and just trashed them and started over again. And you have to be willing to say these aren't good enough, even even if you've spent the money to do it. How hard is that for someone to do? Oh, it's immensely painful and expensive. And, and that's why I think it's so difficult. We allow um, sunk cost syndrome to, to force us to go with something that isn't quite right because we spent so much money on it. And, and probably the best example for me is when I put out Destroyer, which is still my, my top selling book of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew the cover wasn't right. I had paid 800 bucks to get this wonderful Tom Edwards cover. It was beautiful, but it wasn't right. And I knew it. And so I very quickly did a rush job with him. I paid another thousand dollars and I created a better cover. And that was the one that ultimately catapulted the book into fame. Um, Had I not make that change, I mean, we'll never know for sure. But I suspect the book would not have done nearly as well as if I'd gone with the original cover that I'd paid for. And you share other other examples of that uh, of things like that in in the book, like Rick, for example, his his the the relaunching of his and, and the covers, and that's why it becomes so fun to as you're reading to go to Amazon and look at these covers and look at the blurbs and go, oh yeah, I I can see how this could work. But it's I mean, you can look at the original cover and you can look at the end version of the cover, and you may not see the five versions in between where the author is working with the cover designer to get it just right. Right. That's kind of, you know, obfuscated where you don't see all the work that goes into this. All you see is an amazing cover at the other end. And so it's hard, I think, as a new author to connect going from I'm thinking about what my cover should be to I have this amazing cover. And one of the steps along the way can be, no, I'm sorry, artist, this isn't working for me. I need you to start over. When you're working with cover designers, especially for your science fiction books, um, how much input do you have? Do you give them direction up front and then get the final version of the cover back and then say yay or nay? Or are you uh, going through an iterative process with them? I go through an iterative process. Not every artist is okay with this. So I tell them um, at the beginning sort of how it's going to work. Um, I'm an amateur artist myself. I've been working on it for a couple of years. And so what I'll do is I'll do up a mock-up of of what I think it should look like um, in Procreate on my iPad. Um, I'll just, you know, kind of sketch that up and, and drop in some artwork that I find on the internet to just, you know, get across what it is I'm, I'm trying to create. And then they'll do a sketch to me, and I'll look at their sketch, and I'll give them some feedback. If if there's some radical changes, they'll send me a second sketch. If it's just minor ones, we won't do that. Um, and then when we agree on what the sketch should look like, then they'll give me a final piece of artwork. But if that final piece of artwork has problems, um, I will pay above and beyond the original cost I was going to pay for the cover to get extra hours to have them fix that. And one thing that you mentioned in the book that people don't talk about a lot is the idea of separating the artist from maybe the person who builds the cover, Um, getting the right piece of artwork and then having someone else who specializes in getting exactly the right font and putting it in exactly the right place on the artwork and choosing the exact section of of the piece of art that was done as the cover. Can you talk to that for talk about that for a second? Yeah, and, and this is something that requires you to build skill over time or to find people that are already skilled. But we all have you know, things that are in our wheelhouse and things that aren't. And the vast majority of artists that you're going to work out there, um, they they typically will do art of various types, but it's rare for them to do typography. Whereas uh, a cover designer, that's all they do. And they may do you know hundreds of covers over the course of a few years, so they get really, really skilled at it. So you want to find the best person who's able to do any given skill. And I, I think the realization is that art and topography are two different skills, and people who have both are rare. So a couple of examples of how this has burned me, Heroborn, which I mentioned before, mm-hmm. um, the typography on the cover is just fine, but the cover itself is at best mediocre, and that was an instance of me having a designer do the artwork too. 
So it was clearly a mistake. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side of that, my first novel, No Such Thing as Werewolves, the original typography was also created by the artist, and it was terrible, like really (laughs) bad. So as soon as I realized, wait a minute, I should be separating these, I, I started getting much, much better covers. Let's talk for a minute about entry points into a series. You, you spoke about that for a little while in the book, and it's not something that people talk about very often. It, it's, it, you know, we all think, oh, I'm going to write this seven book, 20 book, whatever, however, length, however long the series is going to be, it's going to be great. Um, one of the problems is that there's only one entry point in a lot of ways, and you don't structure your series serieses that way. How do you structure yours to give readers multiple points of entry into the series? I tend to do trilogies. So it's only one of many possible methods. If you want to write a 20 book series, that's, you know, there's a lot of advantages as Michael Anderley has proved. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the advantages of doing trilogies is I can stop after three books. So when I did Destroyer, I then whipped out the two sequels. And after, you know, four months of writing, I was tired. I want a break. Um, normally you can't do that because fans want book four and book five and book six. But in a trilogy, you can finish that trilogy, and they're going to finish it, and they're going to enjoy the ending, and they'll wait a couple months for me to come out with the next trilogy, so it buys me some time. Um, That's probably the primary benefit that I see from it. But there's also, every time I release a new trilogy, if they're structured correctly, someone who's never read any of the other books in the series could pick up a new trilogy, love it, and then go back and buy all the original ones. Mm -hmm. So they're set, um, in my case, mostly in the same universe. Uh, and often using the same characters, but it's not necessary for you to start at any given point. So you could begin with any one of the trilogies, which means whichever trilogy you see first can serve as an introduction to my work. One of the things I, I learned from Michael in an interview, I might have been the third interview, was while he had this, I think it was 21-book series arc planned out, he did have a secondary launch point with book eight. It's like you could read the first seven, and that was getting you up to a certain point, and then you could get in again at book eight, which as a reader, I could never, <laughs> I could never get into a series on book eight. It, would just, it, it just goes against everything I believe in. I would have to go back to the beginning, but I, I found it interesting that he'd actually planned for that. I'm the same way. There's no way I could pick up a book eight in a series. If I saw book eight, I would instantly go back and check out book one. If I liked the sound of book one, I would buy it and start at the beginning. But I'd never start in the middle of a series. So I I don't know how well that works. I guess we'd have to ask Michael. Um, I think it's smart to have more entry points, which he's since done by launching other series Mm -hmm. in the Kutheri and Gambit universe, which I think is a brilliant idea. Yes, and it seems to be working extremely well. Yeah, he's number four and I think, uh, all of science fiction and fantasy. <laughs> amazing. It's amazing how well that's worked. Um, you mentioned formatting as, a, as something that you might do as a part of a very simple relaunch, um, reformatting. You talked about formatting in the book. Why did you decide that, that formatting the books again or differently would add value to the, the reading experience? I had a lot of problems over a few-year period. So um, examples include um, when I put out Destroyer, I, I'm, I'm doing this in Scrivener. That's where I write my books. And I would just compile the book and then upload it. And I would look on Amazon's preview does this look okay? And maybe I'd order a copy for myself. And, and then I would call it a day. The issue is there are dozens of different types of Kindles out there that people are reading on. And what I didn't realize is that Scrivener hard codes um, a whole bunch of fonts and other things inside of the file. So people would get this on their device and they would find they were unable to change the font. Uh, they were locked into this bad courier that nobody wants to read. And I, I had no idea how to fix the problem. 
I was putting out poorly formatted books without any clue on how to fix that. And uh, I, I realized it was becoming a bigger and bigger issue because I was getting one stars. People were saying, you know, this could be a great book, but I'll never know because the formatting is so terrible. I can't mm -hmm. make it past the first page. OK, so the readers sort of let you know. Right, right. Mm -hmm. OK, um, let's talk about audiobooks for a few minutes, because I, I know from the I think maybe the second time you and I talked, um, you've had a lot of success with your audiobooks, and you mentioned not only doing bundles with your audiobooks in the book, you mentioned marketing the audiobooks separately. And, and both of those two things intrigued me because I'm doing a lot of work with audio right now. When you say you market the audiobooks separately, how, what are you finding that's working for mar marketing audiobooks? I use Facebook ads primarily. And when I say working, you're, I'm not making a fortune on them, but I am making a small profit. Um, and so I just look for Audible as an interest when I'm, I'm setting up my audience, and then I combine that with whatever fits the book. So I just, you know, you, you find that sort of Venn diagram intersection okay. of okay. audio listeners that are also into science fiction. And I, what, what percentage is audio now in, in, your, um, in your fiction revenue mix? I would say probably about a quarter, so 25% maybe. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And when you first started doing this, were you paying the narrators yourself or were you doing the uh, revenue share? Um, I paid the narrator for the very first book, and it did so well that he very quickly realized it'd be a better financial deal for him um, to do a royalty split. Okay. And since I like working with him and I wanted him to be invested in the series, I agreed to that. So I will make a lot less money as a result of this. It's a better deal for me to pay up front. Mm -hmm. um, but he's invested in the series. We both get the same monthly check every month, and that's worked out really well for us. Okay. Now let's let's talk about the bundles and, and the idea of, of bundling. I know I've bought some audiobook bundles before, and sometimes they're just insanely inexpensive. Um, how do you... How do you make the decision to bundle audiobooks and why? Um, the decision is, for me, I guess, a, a no-brainer. It's it, it's going to be another revenue stream for you using existing content that you already own, just like it would be for an ebook. But the big advantage that you get in audio is the length. Mm -hmm. um, people, when they purchase, and, and this has been said before, but for anybody who's not familiar, on Audible, um, you get a credit system where you'll buy, let's say, one or two credits a month. And, and any audiobook, regardless of length, is going to cost you a credit. So when you've only got one credit for a month and you want to listen to a book, if one is 40 hours long and another one is eight hours long, you're going to purchase the 40-hour audiobook because that's going to let you listen for the entire month. And a bundle, by its very nature, of course, is longer, and that makes it really attractive to Audible listeners. And how, in your opinion, is Audible or Amazon doing a good job pricing those bundles? I can't see any consistency. It's really weird to me how they price. Uh, I thought it was a function of length, and I guess to some degree it is. But when the Void Ray trilogy came out on audio, the price of the trilogy is the same as a single book in the trilogy, and I have no idea why they did that. Yeah, that's the that's the scary part, especially if you're paying for it up front. If 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 you really if there's a lot of cannibalization, there's so much expense involved in creating the audio books. Um, have you run enough numbers to know that it makes sense to do to do the bundle uh, from a cannibalization standpoint? Um, you know, it, it's hard to say for sure, but yes, I think so for the second series. So what I found is that um, audio does really well 
out of the gate. And typically I get about six good months for a series. And then after that, it's largely powered by me either putting out new books in the same genre Mm -hmm. or through advertising and advertising is only going to do so much. So you are going to reach a point where the market's mostly saturated. And if you want new readers, you're not going to be cannibalizing that much when you put out an audiobook, but as a, or excuse me, a bundle. But as a, a safe rule of thumb, the longer you wait to release a bundle, the less it'll cannibalize sales. Okay. And when did you? How how far after the, the last book in whatever the series is did you release your bundle? Um, so the first one was two months after, which was too soon. The second one was six months after, which is probably about right. But the third time I do this, I'm going to wait nine months. Okay. All right, that's interesting. Um, let's do a quick commercial for the uh, 20 Books Conference that's going to be in Las Vegas in November. I, I know you're going to be there speaking. There are a lot of other former author biz guests who are going to be there. Uh, I'm going to be there as a guest. Uh, it's just it, it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Are you looking forward to going? Absolutely. It's it's about learning and and I you know it's it's kind of rolling up your sleeves and getting down in there and working on your craft and working on your marketing alongside a whole bunch of other people that want to do this exactly the same way. We're willing to put in the time and the effort and we sort of want to, you know, feed off each other's energy um, to pump each other up and learn what we could learn about doing this a little bit more effectively. And I'm I'm thrilled that I'm gonna need to get to meet you and some other authors for the first time and then get to see people I've met at other conferences. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun for meeting so many people that I've never met before, but I've spoken to like you. Um, one of the things that I find astonishing about this conference is the price, which is $99. And as writers conferences go, where you're going to get this kind of value, um, that's a pretty good deal. I agree. That's part of the reason why I signed up. They made it inexpensive so that everybody who can afford to get to Vegas can attend. It's not going to you know, cost them an arm and a leg. And what I think is important is um, normally as a speaker, they'll give you perks. They'll either pay you or they'll pay for your airline ticket and your hotel and your your uh, ticket to the convention. Mm-hmm. None of that's happening here. If somebody is speaking at this conference, we're also still purchasing a ticket and paying for our own hotel and our own room. We're just doing it to be a part of the event and sort of to give back. And I really like the spirit that's going into that. And knowing Craig, that and Craig Martell is the one who's putting together former author biz guest uh, Craig Martell. He's putting all this together, and I'm guessing you're not even going to get a free cup of coffee because there's been so much talk about the uh, the coffee expense. I'm willing to pay for it, but yeah, I suspect there will not be any free coffee. <laughs> so that is in November. It's in Las Vegas, and if you're if you're on the fence about going and you can go, it's only ninety nine dollars. Uh, it, it's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be a lot of tremendous education there. And what are you talking about, Chris? Do you know? Uh, relaunching your novel. <laughs> what, what a surprise. <laughs> and you have a new book that's coming out today called Relaunch Your Novel, Breathe Life Into Your Backlist. Where can people get that book? Uh, that's available on Amazon, um, CreateSpace, and will be on Audible in the next two weeks. What's the best place for people to find you online, Chris? Because you're kind of everywhere. Uh, my, my hub is chrisfoxwrites.com. You can find my YouTube channel, which has ad-free videos for writers, um, articles on marketing, and then, of course, all my books. All right, Chris, thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Hey, thanks for having me, Stephen. I appreciate it. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. As always, we'll have show notes with links to everything we mentioned, including Relaunch Your Backlist at theauthorbiz.com. 